0: So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue-white-green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Dana Rubin is a US-based consultant, speechwriter and speaker who's on a mission to encourage more women to put their views into the public square. She created the Speaking While Female Speech Bank to broaden our understanding of the role of women orators in history. It's actually the world's largest online archive of women's speeches from around the world and across time, and it's free for anyone to use. In addition to speaking and coaching, she leads workshops that support women to be thought leaders, subject matter experts, brand ambassadors, business developers, and role models for future generations of women and girls. At the centre of this practice is the idea of public voice, and the dynamics of power. For the past few years, she has been researching extensively the history of women's speech, and what she found has completely changed her understanding of how historical narrative gets created and reinforced through the years. In this case, the narrative in question is that men have delivered the best speeches in history. It all began a few years ago because she got sick and tired of people hearing quotes by Winston Churchill all the time and thought surely there were other great speakers in history. But then she began to notice virtually all the individuals who we considered great speakers were men like Churchill, Lincoln, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan, all men and I know even mostly white. In her research, Dana soon discovered it's not true. Women have indeed been speaking out forcefully and eloquently in changing the world with their voices. And she's now working on new anthology of American women's speeches, Speaking While Female, 75 Extraordinary Speeches by American Women. Her real mission is to change the way we think about the great oratory of the past and women's roles as speakers and leaders. And today I warmly welcome her to the Politics of Everything.
1: Hello. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you, Amber.
0: Podcasting remotely can be challenging but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencastr. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencastr is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Well, this is such a fascinating topic, but I'd love to know what you wanted to be as a kid. Did you actually want to be a speechwriter or an actor or something in this space, or did you have different ambitions when you were younger?
1: Oh, God, no, I didn't want to speak at all. All I wanted to do was read and write. I was that makes book-
0: sense, though. Like, you think about where you are now. But
1: So for you, I did you think you'd be a journalist
0: or a writer? or What were you thinking when you were maybe, you know, before you
1: finished school, for example? I think I thought I would do something in the world of, ideas and the humanities. I was very interested in the arts and I was very interested in literature. And when I went to university, I got an undergraduate degree in history. But interestingly enough, when even when I was a kid, I was really interested in local history. I to me I always wanted to see what was underneath the surface, what used to be here. And and I grew up in one of the most contemporary cities in you know in America in America, Sunbelt City of Dallas, Texas. And in Dallas they tear everything down and put up something new. And it's full of skyscrapers and glass buildings and contemporary buildings. But I was always interested in what used to be there before. Who were the people who lived here and what did they have to say to us? What was the, the meaning? And it's really funny all these decades later to think that the work that I'm so caught up by and fascinated by really has a lot in common with my childhood imagination.
0: And that's why I like to join the dots and ask people. Look, sometimes people, it's wildly different. You know, they might thought they were going to be a professional tennis player and then they realize they weren't that great when they were, you know, teenager. But for a lot of people, they can look back and see a point where they're like, oh, that's what I was interested in or, you know, that was my hobby or that was something I was naturally gifted in and that's why I've ended up where I am. So that's why I ask people that question because I think it sets yeah. the scene for it where does, they end up. Absolutely.
1: It's a very thought. it's a very insightful thing to know what someone wanted to be. And it's it's very, you know, to be introspective, it's very interesting to me to look back and realize that I was always interested in what the past had to tell us for, for today. I never, you know, some people are futurists. Some people, their imaginations go to the future and they think about what the world is going to be like in 10 years or 100 years or thousand. My imagination doesn't go that way. I always go past. So yeah, we need all types. That- right?
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We need We need everything. So okay. I'm going to ask you a very narrow question now. What in your view is the best women's speech of all time and why for you, and I know this is subjective, is it that one?
1: Well, since I speak about women's speeches a lot, I give a lot of talks and now of course I have this book coming out. I get asked this question all the time. In fact, Amber, that's the most common question that I get asked. And it's not that I'm a contrarian. I'd be happy to ask answer any question, but that's one question I don't like to answer. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm so caught up in the excitement and romance and thrill of discovering, uncovering, excavating speeches by women that I'm always in love with the one I just found. <laughs> and I always think that one is the most amazing one. And that's the one I'm always talking about. And I'm actually very active on LinkedIn. I enjoy the community that I've created or that's you know grown up uh, in my circle on LinkedIn. And I post almost every day. And when I post speeches, when I post pieces about women speakers in history, all kinds of people chime in with insights from all over the world. And the. The speech that I love the most is always the one I just wrote about.
0: Oh, how funny. It's, it's probably like asking. I always think things like, and it's a very binary question. You know, we often ask kids, you know, what's your favorite food? And I would have to break that down and say, what's my favorite dessert? What's my favorite you know, type of Asian cultured food? Or, you know, like it wouldn't be one type of food because it depends on
1: mood and time of the day and all those things. But I will answer the question. It's just not, I won't say that it's my favorite. I will say that this just yesterday, I posted a piece about this woman named Mary Edward Walker. She was an American woman. And she lived mostly in the 19th century and into like the first decade and a half or so of the 20th century. And she was a real free thinker. She did not conform to social expectations in any way. And that's the way her, her parents raised her. They raised her in a free thinking environment and she became well she became a, a doctor she became a surgeon she was the only woman to graduate in her medical class from Syracuse no doubt she had to fight like the Dickens even just to get into medical school but then during the American Civil War she went on the battlegrounds where combatants were fighting and saved lives she went behind the enemy lines she got captured she was a prisoner of war And later she received the Medal of Honor. She's the only woman in the United States to receive the Medal of Honor ever. But here's what I find so interesting. After the war, she became a public speaker and she traveled around the country and lectured. She talked about uh, women's rights. She talked about her wartime experiences, of course, but she also talked about suffrage, the woman's vote, and dress reform. Dress reform was a big issue back then because, of course, women had to wear these corsets and all kinds of ridiculous things, that clothing that constrained their movement. But, but anyway, here's what she did. She would dress up like a man because she liked to, not because she called herself transgender. She was married at one time. I don't know what her sexual orientation was, but she just thought women would be better off if they had freer movement. So she dressed, dressed like a man when she felt like it. And when people would say, why are you wearing men's clothes? She would say... I'm wearing my clothes. Yeah, wow.
0: That's very <laughs> forward thinking, really. And I have to say, I am definitely someone who finds trousers or pants a lot more comfortable. Um, and I'm so glad we have choice.
1: <laughs> no, we have choice because women like her paved the way for us and normalized it, right, and made it not seem so weird. But here's what I wrote about. In 1912, she went to Congress, the U.S. Congress, and she spoke to a, a committee, a subcommittee, about the woman's vote. And you can just imagine the setting. This was a hearing room full of men, of course, white, white, surely sure. mostly white men, as you pointed out. And she talked to them about the logic of the woman's vote, why it made sense in a republic that that supposedly represented all the people in the republic, why it was completely illogical that women not have the vote. And she talked for about a half an hour. We have her testimony, and then when uh, half an hour is over the the chairman of the committee said, thank you very much, moving right along to the next item on our agenda. Wow. Dismissed. So, <laughs> yes, people might say, well, she didn't have any impact at all. What she did didn't make any difference at all. But I, I believe that every time someone speaks out for change, they plant a seed. They pave the way for other people down the line. They introduce reforms and, and and make them common so that they're less abnormal and so they're less unusual and less radical. So it was women like that, Mary Edward Walker, who really paved the way for the world that we know, and she's she's virtually unheard of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So and I, I think it's great to draw attention to people that are lesser known, which I suppose leads to my next question. And we have alluded to in the introduction that men in their speeches are the most often referred to, like I think if you Googled – best speeches of all time, you'd find a whole bunch of, of men in their quotes and often they're men that have lived in a different era, not always, but, you know, I think of, yes, your JFK Jr., Michael Jordan, the basketballer, or even Barack Obama, the the U.S. president. To set the real good straight, you created that free online archive with thousands of speeches by women across history and we talked about it a little bit earlier. It was this, It's called the Speaking While Female Speech Bank. What was the tipping point that made you feel compelled to create such a global repository? Because I suppose it's a great idea, but I'm sure it's a ton of work. And was there something that really was a catalyst to go, I really need to do this?
1: Well, there was actually. And since this is an audio and you can't see me, I'll describe that in my hands I'm holding a book. It's a tome. It's a big, thick book. It's called Lend Me Your Ears, Great Species in History, selected, introduced, and introduced by William Sapphire. Now, William Sapphire – in the, in the United States, he used to be well-known, of course, probably not anymore. But he was a speechwriter for Nixon and for President Nixon and his vice president, Agnew. And then he was a columnist for the New York Times and quite erudite and very well-respected, highly respected, kind of a word smith. And he wrote a column about language that, that a lot of people in the knowledge class, you know, the creative classes and intelligentsia would read and respect him. And so he wrote this book. He compiled this anthology, and it became a classic. And I wager that it is on – I mean, it's on thousands of bookshelves across America. And one day I pulled it off – he's called Lend Me Your Ears, of course. That comes from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Friends Roman countrymen, Lend Me Your Ears. So one day I I just cracked it open and just took a look, and I looked in the table of contents and started counting up. And to my surprise, there are in this book – Two hundred and two speeches by men, and fifteen by women. That's crazy. When I it really is. (laughs) When I looked at that table of contents, the scales fell from my eyes. You know that expression? The scales absolutely. Yeah. There is something wrong with this picture. This cannot be the case.
0: Absolutely, and I can see. Yeah, that you turn that. I guess you know, in some ways, outrage, whatever it was, you fell into action. And so this particular repository, like, has this taken you years to put together? I mean, how would you even start?
1: Oh, the speech bank that I created? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, I I just can picture the idea. And it's amazing. But like, did you just, or had you been working sort of in the back of your mind, you know, because of what you love to do? Was it something that you'd started to collate fabulous women's speeches and this sort of formalized it in some way or did you have to start from scratch?
1: I actually started from scratch I put that website up like overnight I got it up like in a week and I just started throwing on all the women you know all the speeches by women that I could find and of course at first there were some that quite rightly are famous I mean by maybe Sojourner Truth or Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony or Helen Keller, those are all Americans, but even, you know, global figures, Indira Gandhi or lots and lots of uh, women from India who are famous spe- speakers. I just started putting them on the site. But then as time went on, I got more and more interested in, in the nuances and women that weren't so famous. And I'll tell you something that I've seen over or experienced over and over in my life is when you go deep, you know, you go into a tiny little aperture, a little tiny little world, and the deeper you go, the more it opens up and enlarges. And I entered into this vast world of women's oratory that I had no idea existed. And, and I always say I used to have hobbies and now i don't have any hobbies now i just research women's speeches <laughs> it's and a full time job i bet you could just go forever even, and have no other yeah, activities in mind i don't even resent it because i'm so interested in it when i find another one that opens up a whole new world to me i'm so fascinated and excited and you're right you said something earlier i was motivated by anger but anger frustration irritation fed up however you you know want to phrase it that is a great catalyst I always tell the women I speak to that frustration, anger, irritation—let it be a catalyst for change.
0: Absolutely, and I have to ask. I imagine um, Australia's former and only female prime minister, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech
1: would be in there. Of course, it is. And I was (laughs) in preparation for our conversation. I made a list of some well-known Australian women's speeches and Julia Gillard's speeches at the top. And oh, I, I fantastic. Say, yeah, it I, did go global and it was a
0: very unplanned yeah. speech. If you know the history of that, that wasn't something that she had penned for weeks on end or practised and rehearsed. It was literally written down just before she went into Parliament to address the chamber. And I've actually got a tea towel, which has kind of been, you buy it from a gift shop at at our Parliament House, which is like our White House in Canberra. And uh, it's actually just how it was written on the back of, you know, some notes and they turned that into a, a bit of memorabilia, which I think is pretty amazing.
1: Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It is phenomenally famous here in the States and I'm sure all over the world. But I do have a good friend in Australia, Karen Jacobson, and she has set... Julia Gillard's misogyny speech to music. She's created a kind of yes. story. Yes, oh, I think I might have heard and, that, yeah. And your, your listeners must go look up Karen Jacobson's rendition of the misogyny speech, and she got people from all over the world to quote sections of it and piece it all together. It's magnificent.
0: Excellent. A goal, I guess, is a message that, that the women today, that we do have an accessible and inspirational past to draw upon. And you're obviously very fascinated by that historical narrative and the, the different aspects of female speech and oratory history. It allows us to be inspired. I guess for some of us, it benefits our careers because we see, you know, you can never see what you... You can never be what you haven't seen, so you kind of get inspired. You might have a new passion or a cause. And obviously, the great thing about speeches is it's something you could really pass on to future generations. Does looking back somehow inform our future in your view? And I'm assuming so. And is there an example or two which come to mind where you go? Because people could think about even the example you gave earlier and think, well, that's great. But with the women who have had the vote for so long now, that doesn't really relate to me, for example.
1: Oh, but it does. It absolutely does. Well, I'll I'll just give you one example of a woman, an American woman who inspires me a lot. Her name was Clara Shortridge Foltz, and she uh, she had this experience that was quite common in the you know in the nineteenth century. She got married, had a bunch of kids, and then her husband abandoned the family, so she was left with, to raise the kids. And she moved to the West Coast she moved to California and she became a speaker a public speaker and she did that as for a living for a while and then she decided she wanted to go to law school only to find out that all the doors were closed women couldn't take the bar exam in California they couldn't they couldn't study for the bar they couldn't take the what, bar what exam. What year are we talking? Them. What year are? This was like the 1850s uh, Okay 1860s 1850s I don't know the exact year but she uh, she actually sued the state of California so that she could take the bar. She and her friend, Laura DeForest Gordon, they, they got together and sued and went all the way up to the California State Supreme Court. Then they sued Hastings School of Law so they could get into the law school. So she became the first lawyer, first woman lawyer on the West Coast of the United States, the first woman lawyer in California. But here's the story I want to tell you. She became a lawyer and she worked in the courtroom. She would be in the, in the criminal courts. She would be defending a, a client. And she observed from her experience the way that defendants were completely bol- rolled, or steamrolled by the prosecutor. The prosecutor had all the power. The prosecutor had the money. The prosecutor had the evidence, the paperwork, everything. And the poor defendant, who was just accused of a crime, was likely an indigent person and didn't have enough money to hire a lawyer. And she said, "This is wrong." You know, under American law, it probably Australian law as well, um, because they come from a common, you know, ideology or common source. The defendant is innocent until proven guilty. Oh, yes, we have that in
0: theory. I mean, I say it in theory, because, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel that way.
1: But that's the foundation of our legal system. You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, you have every right. The court court and the judge should be protecting that. And instead, she would see all these defendants come in and get completely steamrolled and then sentenced and have you know no recourse so she made a speech in 1893 in which she said that we need a system in which the state sponsors lawyers for the defendant for the indigent and she called it a, a public defender system i mean can you imagine that she saw this it was a humanitarian gesture it was an empathetic gesture or a sympathetic gesture Absolutely. that she saw from her experience in the courtroom, and that idea, the public defender system has, of course, spread throughout the United States. We have them in every jurisdiction because we believe that the indigent deserve representation. You can't—you don't have to be rich to defend yourself. So I raise this because why? Why do I raise this? Because she saw something in her own daily life. She saw an injustice. She saw something that didn't square with the ideals of the nation, the purported ideals, and she spoke out about it. She crafted a beautiful speech, eloquent argument for the need to protect the vulnerable. And she introduced a, a reform. She came up with an, a creative idea, a reform. And she uh, she, uh, she changed the nation with that. And it may be, it was 1893, her speech, I believe, it may be 120 years ago. But the same thing happens every day in your country and in mine and around the world. We see something yeah. that's wrong and we come up with a creative solution and we use our voice to argue for a reform. So what are the main
0: implications for women who might be striving to make their mark in the world, maybe just, you know, have some confidence to step up, use their voice in their community, in their family, in, in, in their world that they, you know, habitate? What is the problem, I guess, if you like, if they don't have their public voice recognized. Because some people might say, well, all these great speeches exist. It's just that no one's bothered to highlight them or it's it's it is a bit of sexism, but so be it. That's the world. I mean, what do you see as the the issue if we don't correct this imbalance, if you like?
1: Well I think there's a couple of things. One is we need role models. We just need to be able to look to other women and see that they have done it. And especially when you look at the past and you really try. You really make an effort to understand the historical context. You see that these women had to endure all kinds of obstacles, hindrances. I mean, the criticisms and the the you know, a woman would speak, and the newspapers would condemn her and criticize her and call her all kinds of terrible names. Women were subjected to violence. There were people who would, who would attack them. Lucy Stone was famously doused with a bucket of cold water when she spoke. So on the platform, when she was pretty humiliating stuff, that's terrible. So when you, well, when you look at that, you think, well, gosh, if those women did it, despite all that, certainly we could do it. We don't have to put up with that. We don't have to dodge projectiles being thrown at us on the stage. So it's a source of, I think it's a source of of comfort or reassurance that, yes, you can do this thing. And you don't have to be perfect at it. You can get up and share your knowledge and share your expertise, but be driven by your passion, by your conviction. I think that's the most important fuel that. Yeah, animates. I think that's. Yeah.
0: I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. So is this about rewriting history in some way in, in trying to have this gender balance in the public voice realm? Like, And how can we speed this up? Because I'm sure the US is similar, but we ever, it's coming up to International Women's Day and Every year we talk about things like the gender pay cap, for example, in Australia and how it's going to take, you know, 99 years at the current pace for women's salaries to equal men's for the same work. I mean, that discussion I think has been going for as long as I can remember. So how do we actually get these things not just happening, but happening quicker?
1: Well, I, I read those same things that you do. I read all those projections and I actually don't believe them because What I see in the generations after me, the, the young women who are one generation behind me and then coming up after them, I see young women who are speaking out. When they don't like a situation, they speak out. And not just through speeches and, you know, a voice is a metaphor. A voice is the sound that comes out of your voice, your mouth. But it's also, you know, a metaphor for Putting your ideas into the world and speaking up, and I don't think generation the younger women and generations are go, uh, to come are going to stand for the same kinds of gender imbalances that we are. At least not in you know not in developed countries. I mean, there are a lot of countries in the world that are not as wealthy as our countries, and where women bear much greater burden. Than we do. And I think those countries are behind us. But I think that, you know, in countries like Australia and the Western world, I think that they're not, we're not going to stand for that. I think that in a very short time, we're going to see much more. I have very a lot of optimism that we're going to see much more gender balance. And the changes that I've seen just in the last 10 years are nothing short of extraordinary. When I started this work, um, we would have, it wouldn't be common to open the, you know, in a newspaper, to look in a newspaper and see op-eds and articles, all by men, or to go to a conference and see all men on the podium. Manels, I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with that. It Mannles doesn't happen and, anymore. Yeah. It just
0: does. No, it doesn't happen it as does much, although I'm always now. a little bit surprised that sometimes I I work in public relations and I help clients do things like public speaking and I do get little bit shocked in and go oh but you know there were no women speakers available it's like you haven't tried very hard you know that you might have a panel and they might just have two women out of six and and, oh but it's a banking and finance conference I'm like a lot of women work in banking and finance it's not you know we're not talking about the 1960s here so I think you've just got to keep reminding people
1: no I think there's I think we have to tease this out a little bit because I hear this a lot Right. And I know it's true. I talk to conference organizers and event organizers, and they say, we invite 10 women and, you know, one might respond. We invite, you know, three men and all of them respond. Well, that might be true, I think, for a number of reasons. One is women today are still not as comfortable and confident speaking in public. One reason, of course, is because they don't do it as much. So it's a vicious cycle. You don't do it as much, you don't get. Good the muscle you don't
0: flex doesn't get exercised,
1: but there is another environmental reason for that, of course, which is that women have much bear a much bigger burden. I mean, I always think about this uh, scenario imagine the boss walks the hallway and he pops into um, uh, Susie's office and he says, Susie, we have an opportunity next week and Taiwan, can you hop on a plane and go speak to these customers? And Susie's thinking, well, I've got to take care of the kids and I have my elder care and I'm you know, and i not that good at public speaking maybe. So she says, no, I can't do it. Well, then he goes two doors down and says, Stuart, can you do that? And Stuart says, sure, of course I'll do it. So Stuart goes and gives a speech. He gets blue ribbon from his boss, of course, gold stars or whatever. He meets potential clients there. He represents the company. And he makes, you know, all kinds of riches come out of his speech. But, you know, it's not a level playing field.
0: It's not it's a level not playing field. Level no, playing and maybe, field. you know, it's very stereotypical. But he's probably, if he has got a partner at home, they probably get, oh, he's not going to worry about if the, how the kids are going to get to school earlier that day or who's going to pick him up if his speech runs over or he has to network or any of those things probably.
1: It is changing though. These things are changing. I oh, see- the next generation
0: of men I think are just totally expecting to be, you know, equally involved in all of that stuff.
1: So I do, I have a lot of optimism about that, but I think it's understandable why, why it's still the case. And I have a lot of, I actually have a lot of sympathy for event organizers when they say that they have difficulty getting women on the panel, because it's it is true. It is a challenge. And we just have to keep working at it. Absolutely. We do keep going. So we've talked about obviously gender diversity, but I'm
0: curious about, you know, there's obviously more than one, you know, string to the diversity bow, you know, being of color, LGBTQI plus, being neurodiverse, for example. And how do we actually help that become all part of the elevation of public voice representation so we can all have some degree of representation because I think gender is important but there's obviously other aspects to what makes us all individuals.
1: Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. I feel like I I feel like I set you up for that because now I get a chance to talk about my new book. I have a, an anthology <laughs> of American women's speeches that's just coming out. I just opened the box yesterday and got my first books. It's oh, called, congratulations. It's a great feeling. Oh, it is a great feeling. Speaking While Female, 75 Extraordinary Speeches by American Women. And it starts with uh, the colonial era in 1637 and goes all the way up to the Present and in that collection, I have speeches very diverse, of course, by race and ethnicity. I have eighteen speeches by Black women and Indigenous women, and Latina women and Asian American women, and so it's very diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. But I also made sure to have a woman, a historic speech by woman speaking out for what was at the time called lesbian rights. This was 1972 at the Democratic National Convention. Madeline Davis. But then I have Judy Human speaking up for disability rights. She's a, a, a very strong advocate for disability rights and used her voice to get legislation. The Americans with Disabilities Act passed. And then um, I have Temple Grandin, who speaks out for neurodiversity. So I really have worked hard to get a range. Well, you've of-
0: done your work then. i have like, that- that question is fully satisfied. And I'm so glad I got to ask it to you as your book comes out. That was perfect. And for anyone listening, this wasn't planned. I didn't actually know the book was going to be landing the day that we were going to record this. Changing tack a little bit, what's the best advice you've ever
1: been given and why? Well, I I, I guess it depends on the day. I sound kind of wishy-washy, but I started thinking about this because you did tell me you were going to ask this question. And I I remember when I was a when I was in college, I came home from college and we were sitting around the dinner table and my uncle, who was quite uh, practical, very pragmatic, very pragmatic and a bit of a grump. And he said, what are you, you know, what are you studying in college? And I was a history major. And I said, well, I'm taking a class in Greek history. And he said, he's like, harumph. What do you need to know Greek history for? (laughs) Very grouchy. And my mother said, she stood up for me and she said, Donna needs to know everything. And I'll always remember that. It wasn't exactly a piece of advice, but I really... No,
0: but it's a great kind of example of, I guess, what's shaped you as
1: well. Well, I, I, you know, I've been a speechwriter for a long time and I have a lot of friends who are speechwriters. And I have a good friend who studied physics as as a undergraduate. And he always says, Whatever you learn in the world, whatever you learn goes into your creative output. The strategic thinking, the the ability to handle different thoughts, strains of thought at one time, the ability to parse out an argument, the skills of distillation and making making the complex clear and understandable, all those things you can learn no matter what you study. So I suppose if you were to put it into a bit of advice, it would be be curious and learn, and whatever you learn will be useful to you.
0: Absolutely. If we spoke again in a year's time, what would be your number one goal to have achieved and
1: why? Oh, I just I'm on fire to get my book into libraries and classrooms across America because I want every young girl and every young woman to know that Uh, women have been speaking. And I want this book to be used alongside the standard history and social studies textbooks that pretend like women never spoke in history. So a year from now, I want to have seen that my book is on the library shelves. And I always say that even if a little girl doesn't pull the book off the library shelf, even if she never cracks the spine, if she just walks by and sees the title and sees speaking while female, she will subliminally get the message that women's speech is valuable and matters.
0: And that might lead us to our final takeaway message today for us on the politics of public voice. What would you
1: like to say? What would I like to say? Well, I think in as much as politics is about power, the politics of speech on the history of speech is very much about the history of power. And in a democracy Uh, where we value different points of view and and let the best idea win. We value free speech. It's especially important, especially today when we all face so many problems, problems of governance, problems of representation, environmental and climate challenges. We have such a big load on our plates, all of us. It is so important that the best ideas get aired in our democracies and that we stand up for our democracies and that we stand up for a form of government that does allow everybody to use their voice. So I think it's more important than ever that we understand that using your voice is a political act, political in that you are operating in an arena in which you are vying with other ideas, you're competing with other ideas, and let the best idea win.
0: Fantastic. And, of course, if you want to connect further with Dana, there will be some details on the show notes until next time do take care thanks so much for listening today if you've enjoyed the politics of everything i thrive on your feedback so please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through apple spotify and all the usual suspects i'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests so if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my
1: crew will get back to you very soon.